Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February the 2nd, 2015. This is episode 1510 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday, Monday, Monday. What the? Monday? Come on. What, isn't it supposed to be Friday, Friday? Remember, we skipped the call-in show on Friday last week, so we're going to do a Monday call-in show. It's Hard to get real excited about Mondays, I know, but I'll do my best for you. I wanted to make up skipping that show for you. I just had to do that on Friday. We had way too much going on and way too much catching up going on. So um, before we uh, get to your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. Uh, where are you going to learn how to build a knife? Well, you can do that by actually just getting on with it and doing it, but hey, that's kind of daunting. Uh, for a lot of people. So if you start out with a kit, you can learn the basics, final fit and finish and sharpening and be able to make something custom. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. And if you're not sure what to do with a the kit, they've got DVDs and books. And if you need some help picking stuff out, you can call them. There's real people there that really care and will talk to you. Uh, they're a great company. They've been with us a very long time, well thought of in all the blade forms. Check them out today, knifekits.com, and start developing that skill of blade crafting right in your own home. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Easiest company I could ever take on as a sponsor. Why? Been a subscriber since 1994. It's 2015. That's 21 years. Duh. Yes, I recommend that you become a subscriber to Backwoods Home. Uh, I don't think I've had a relationship with any company uh, in the world longer than Backwoods Home. I can't think. Maybe State Farm Insurance, and that's just because it's easier to keep once you have it. Um That's that's about it, man, guys. I, I can't tell. What else can I say? 21 years of reading Backwoods Home Magazine, and a lot of the knowledge that I share with you guys on the air was gained at least in part through all those, de you know, two decades now of, of reading Backwoods Home Magazine, and great writers like Jackie Clay, Masada Yub, and uh, Dave Duffy over there, great guys, John Silvera, check out Backwoods Home if you ever, ever have before, and remember that you have a special deal for you if you sign up through the Member Support Brigade, uh, along with discounts from KnifeKits.com, and you know, most sponsors do give you guys a discount. If you're a member of the Members Support Brigade, that sounds quite official. It sort of is. You can sign up with a membership fee of $50 a year. You get a bunch of content that's available nowhere else, like almost $200 worth of eBooks the day you sign up. You get every episode of TSP ever ever recorded and really convenient zip files, and you get discounts to about 60 companies now, 60. Now, these are things you're probably buying anyway, so uh, check out the Member Support Brigade for more information. Go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members, and remember, if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining and then get your money back. That's the way I look at it. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Put service discount TSPC in the subject line, service discount Tango, Sierra, Papa, Charlie in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two senses. I will get the discount back to you. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year of 1510. We have the Emperor's Tax Collector is dying to come to dinner. Sunflowers in Spain, random does not equal good. And Fahrenheit 451, the burning of Hebrew books. 
This was a tough one. I like all three. I'm going to just pick the one in the middle. All right? When you're not sure, pick the one in the middle. Sunflowers in Spain, random does not equal good. Okay, here we go. Any number of plants are being carried from the new world to the old, mostly for their ornamental value. They look strange and pretty. The sunflower comes to Spain in 1510, but it has been thousands of years in the making. The first domesticated sunflower seeds were found in caves on the East Coast in North America about 3,000 years ago. The Indians have been using them for food and a cure for rheumatism. The English will finally start pressing oil from sunflowers. Uh, many years, this is uh, Alex, take, Alex Shrug's take, who puts these together for us on tspwiki.com. Many years ago, my friend grew a few sunflowers in his front yard. Longhorns grazed a few blocks away from his home. General agriculture is hardly unknown in our area, yet the neighbors complained about weeds, probably because they didn't like the layout. My friends seem to equate random and chaotic with natural and good. Most people believe the myth that if you just let things happen, everything will reach a balance, but if you take that too literally, what you will have are choking weeds. The Indians aren't doing that. The efforts only look natural to the Spaniards because they used a monocrop agriculture. The Indians were acting on the environment, planting several species that supported each other throughout the year and managing the herd animals. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think this guy's neighbor is probably just a jackass um, and bitching, and I don't think maybe he did anything wrong. But I think that we do in the sustainable agriculture, permaculture, restoration agriculture mindset have this belief that like, nature just knows what to do, man. We can just throw stuff out there and it'll grow. Uh, yeah, some of it will. And what you'll notice, though, is when you when you have ground that you're not managing, it is never optimum. So the species of, of plants that show up are what we call pioneer species. This is the tough-ass stuff for the area in question. It grows fast. It deals with deficiencies in minerals and nutrients. And it puts on rapid growth. And it holds soil together. It's a reparative thing. It's designed to do that. And when you say, if I leave it alone, it'll, it'll work itself out, it, it will, but it work itself out to what? That's what you got to look at. So how would you know? Okay, go to a place that no one's touched for 50 years, and that's what your yard or your farm is trying to become if you don't touch it. Assuming that the land itself is not degraded beyond the point of it can actually do that. But what you'll find in most of this country is the land wishes to become forest. Even in the plains, before we went and screwed everything up, there was an awful lot of forest in the plains. It was strip forest along river valleys and things like that. And there's a lot of places now where you look and go, wow, that must have been like a running river like 10,000 million years ago when there were dinosaurs or something. Because you can tell there was water here, but there's not been water running in this thing for you know, as long as any living person um, can, can remember. Yeah, but about two generations uh, back of, of dead people, you could find diary entries all across the plains and going up into the mining areas in the mountains where you can read from in the diary entries of the guys that were cutting the timber that as they cut the trees, they watched the creeks stop running. So there's this natural tendency for our ecosystems to try to go back to a forest system. That's fine if we want forest, but if we want productivity, even if we want productivity from a forest, we have to have a guiding hand. Now, what, the reason I picked this one, though, is a lot of people talk about Three Sisters Garden. Survivalists love the Three Sisters Garden. Um, three Sisters, Three Sisters, corn, beans, and squash. And I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of attempts at Three Sisters Gardens, and I've not seen a lot of productive ones. I don't let people realize the scale. So a Three Sisters Garden was a circle about as big as an average bedroom. 
And it was piled up with a bunch of leaf litter, and it was basically a hoogle mount. So it was wood and all kind of organic debris and then bunches of humus and leaves and stuff thrown on there. And what the natives planted was a squash of a winter squash variety, a bean of a shell bean variety, and a corn of a, a flint or shell corn variety. Why? So you didn't have to do anything until everything was ready to be harvested. So, every, so the beans were just left to hang on the vines and what have you. But I think another thing people don't realize is a lot of, a lot of native tribes were more inclined to use a sunflower than maize in many climates where the sunflower just did better. And people say, well, the corn has more nutrition. I don't know, man. You sprout sunflowers for 24 hours, and you've got some pretty supercharged nutrition. So if you're thinking about doing a Three Sisters annual guild, consider using sunflowers instead of corn. With that, let's get to the first call of today's show. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in North Georgia, and I have a question about soil pH and amending soil with lime. Here's the details. I live in North Georgia, and we have pretty acidic soils, and my place is no different than the others around me. When I bought my trees from the nursery, the nursery man was adamant. He said, you must throw some lime in the hole when you plant the trees, and then you must uh, lime the rest of the ground around them. Well, I ignored him. And my trees are doing fine. I had some great Asian pears in the first year, and I was very happy with it. But then I've had some struggles with some other plants, plants like echinacea, which I just discovered seem to prefer more alkaline soils. And as I'm about to put in some goji berry bushes and other bushes that uh, specify uh, preferring alkaline to neutral soils, I'm wondering if I should rethink my, um, my attitude toward liming the soil. I'm kind of like that old cantankerous guy you were talking about on the podcast that thinks, well, if you can't do it with what you got, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe I just don't need to be planting these plants. Anyway, let me know what you think about liming soil or maybe liming soil for specific planting. And uh, I look forward to hearing what you think. Love the show. Bye-bye. The members of this audience that have been around a while, especially those that like permaculture type things, know exactly what's coming. It depends, right? And it, it does depend. But you gave me some pretty good specifics where we can get beyond just like speculation. So first of all, let's talk about your trees. So you have this acidic soil, you're planting trees, probably fruit trees and, and what have you, like you said. And you have a nurseryman telling you that your soil's too acidic. Well, part of what it depends on is, well, what does that mean? What does acidic mean? Is it six? Is it four? Big difference. Both would be considered acidic soils. Forest-like acidic soils. As you move toward fungal dominance, which you think of mean a lot more fungus than bacteria, but as you get to a one-to-one -one ratio, about one fungi to one bacteria in a soil sample, you move that, that's considered fungal dominance. You move toward the acidic. And forest soils are generally acidic. There are some exceptions. A forest grown on top of um, a caliche base, a limestone base like I have here, is always going to tend toward the alkaline Because you can only, the, the acid and the alkaline neutralize each other and you end up with a hell of a lot more sub rock than you do topside humus. But it'll even move in this environment toward the acidic. So acidic is good for trees, for most trees. Okay? And just as we were talking about in the intro segment, what grows in an area is what can handle that area and move it toward whatever secession for that area means. Is it, is it savanna scrub oak, uh, arroyos in, in South Texas? Or is it 
big mainstream forests in the Northeast. So it's it's the case that the guy that told you you needed to put something to move toward alkaline for fruit trees was just wrong. Uh, unless you're like super acidic. I mean, again, really, really problematic to grow anything. Trees, most trees, and almost all fruit trees would prefer to be in an acidic soil. Apples actually do well in alkalinity, but they do well with some, some acidity as well. Uh, pecans move toward the alkaline. Chestnuts want to be acid. So there's this difference in this variance there. So what you did was great. You just said, screw it, you put them in the ground, and they did well. So great, they don't do anything. Work on organic matter, humus, soil buildup, fertility, worry about that. And things will tend to work itself out. So the next thing I would say is you do need to look at, well, what what is your pH? I, I didn't actually hear you say my pH is X. But let's just assume that something like a goji, which which loves alkaline soil, 7274, it's like, <laughs> baby, let's go. And let's say your pH is down in the 5-5 range, where it's maybe not going to be that happy. It's hard to do with expensive plantings, right? But getting one or two and putting them in the best area you can and seeing how they do is one way to do it. The other way is to, to propagate your own. Like goji, if you can get one and put it in a pot and give it exactly what it wants and make it grow all nice and pretty and start taking cuttings off of it, rooting cuttings, you're just plunking them all around, now it's cheap. Now you can see if they can survive. Because the best thing to do is nothing, if you can. And then, yes, you're on the, on the right track with the concept of if this doesn't grow well here, don't grow it. To a degree. And, and that's what I've had to accept with certain things, like blueberries. I plant blueberries here. They look great. As soon as the heat of summer comes on, the stress from the alkalinity when they want acid, they look like they burn. They look like somebody sprayed them with Roundup. They, just chem they look like a chemical burn. They just can't handle it. And even doing some acidity amendments you know, didn't get them through that. So I have a choice. If I want to grow a blueberry, I need to build a great big raised bed you know, and, and put my own soil in it that's completely managed independently of the ground, and then I can have blueberries. Is it worth it to me? So if you had to do the same thing for gojis, is it worth it to you? My inkling is that goji will do okay, even in a slightly acidic condition. And yes, if, if it's not looking happy and you toss a little lime around it, then, you know, all things, are, if, it, if it corrects itself, all things are good and well, and that's fine. But I think that... You're going to find the problem with amending soil is it comes from an annual agriculture mindset. We're dumping shit on the soil every year anyway, so adding some lime is not a big extra step. Where with a sustainable perennial mindset, you want as few inputs as possible. You would like the system in time to create its own inputs or inputs with your help. In other words, if I plant a whole bunch of deciduous trees... Uh, I might have to do a little pruning and maintenance and all every year and a little chop and drop, but in the end, the tree does most of the work. The leaves fall to the ground, and I don't, I don't rig them up, send them away. I leave them there, and they build soil, and they build biological activity, etc. If I put livestock through there, it gets even better. So if you are in a situation where I have to amend the soil, it's something you find yourself continuously having to do. So people in my environment will go another way. You, they use sulfur. Right to acidify the soil. Well, the problem is the sulfur is never going to exist in sufficient quantities to counteract the, the kabillion molecules of, of, of limestone that's in the soil as it's been broken down from the substrata. So it's this continuous process. So you could try it, and I would. 
Now, here's the thing, though. What you generally find where you have soils that are, are fairly deep is that we take a soil sample, and a soil sample we say, okay, the, we mix it together, we follow all the instructions to do what the, the soil people tell us to do. Okay, the soil here is acidic. It's 5.6. But if you actually looked at the soil in the first inch, and then the soil in the second inch, and the soil in the third inch, and the soil in the fourth inch, and the soil in the fifth inch, and you did not disturb or incorporate those layers together, and you left them alone, you'd find different pHs would stratify based on the biological and the chemical activity at each layer. And if we stop tilling soil, that stratification stabilizes. And many times a plant, you do a soil sample and a plant just should not do good at 5.5. And it's happy. It's either supposed to have more acid or, or, or more alkaline, and it's happy. Well, what's happened is it's found in those zones a place to send out the majority of its horizontal root structure. And as long as enough nutrient and moisture exists at that level, it's good to go. You think about a tree with a taproot. I mean, you look at something like a pecan, and a pecan is going to prefer an alkaline environment. It could do with a little acidity, but it, it's from regions that have generally alkaline soil, so it's adapted to that through natural selection. Now, you say, okay, well, it wants alkaline. And you look at the surface of your soil, and you say, well, this is whatever the pH is. But what's the taproot? on a pecan tree like in soils where it can penetrate after five or ten years. It's probably eight to ten feet or more. The just the big bulk of the taproot. God knows how deep some of the smaller uh, you know probing roots go. And what's that tree's depth in twenty or thirty or forty years? How far down does that tree go? What's the pH down there? It, it's all dependent. I mean a lot of times you have acid soils in pine barren lands, but the acidity is relatively shallow. So the best answer I can give you is to try it and see. But, you know, be prepared to take some losses. And if something doesn't work, then you need to look at either putting it into a raised bed or pot or something like that. Because uh, I don't think just continuously amending the soil is really going to work for you uh, in the long-term health of the plant. Now, what you can do is try kind of limping it along getting it through into like a second, third year of establishment, and at that point see if it can handle it. But I don't like to raise wimpy plants. I like to raise plants that are tough and adapted, and I use Mark Shepard's stun method. I plant the shit out of stuff, and what dies, dies. And when I do that, you get to a point where you realize this is the stuff that's supposed to be here. And you stop spending money trying to you know, revive the dead or bringing in new things just to kill them. If you kill enough of something, just accept it doesn't work here, uh, and either adapt through, you know, raised bed soil control methodologies or don't grow that. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from California, and I have a question about student loan forgiveness. I want to know if it's worth it or is it just a scam. Here's the details. I currently owe about $60,000 in student loans, and I pay about $700 a month. I was recently contacted by a company saying I qualify for student loan forgiveness, and my payment will be about $60 a month for the next 20 years, and whatever outstanding balances after that point will all be forgiven. It sounds too good to be true. I don't know if it is true. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks. Having never taken on student loan debt ever for any reason at all, ever, as in never, I am not an expert here, but you, you gave me some numbers that immediately led me to some conclusions. You know, Without going to college, I can do some basic math. 
and I can take a $60,000 loan and uh, you look at a $700 payment and go seven years, seven years and two months-ish if it was zero interest, throw some amortization and interest on there, and you're looking at a nine to ten year payment schedule, unless that number goes up, and sometimes with student loans, that number over time goes up, okay? So that's that's what that is, and that's going to probably put into the till uh $70,000, $75,000-ish in total payments. And uh, $60 for 20 years is about $14,400. So I'm supposed to believe here that this company can take your uh, $60,000 debt, turn it into a 20-year debt, and you only pay fourteen grand on it. Now, if that was true, I would prefer to just... You know, go out and, and deliver pizzas for a year and raise 14 and give it to them now. Here's 14.4, go away. It ain't gonna happen. Something stinks here. Let me tell you, there is a such thing as student loan for forgiveness, student loan forgiveness, and this is the only ones I can find that are legitimate. The Department of Education's Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program covers those who work at least 30 hours a week for public service organizations, which include most government and nonprofit agencies. If they make 120 monthly loan payments, they can then apply for forgiveness. At that point, any remaining balance on eligible student loans, which include direct loans and direct consolidation loans, is forgiven. So you would know if you are a Department of Education uh, Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program member. So do you work 30 hours a week for a public service organization, which would include most government and nonprofit agencies? And have you made at least 120 loan payments? If so, you don't need these people. They'll just write off everything if you qualify. The next one is teachers who first took out direct loans or Stafford loans in October 1998 or later can also take advantage of the teacher loan forgiveness program. Under that program, once you've taught for five years in certain schools or educational service agencies that serve low-income families, you can get up to $17,500 in loans forgiven. To reach the full amount, you have to be high, highly qualified secondary school math or science teacher or special education teacher serving children with disabilities. Teachers in other areas can get up to $5,000 in forgiveness. And then the other group is... Perkins loan borrowers are eligible for several forgiveness and cancellation opportunities. Many educators in elementary and secondary schools, firefighters, law enforcement officials, nurses, and active duty military personnel in hostile fire areas qualify to have as much as 100% of their Perkins loan balance canceled under certain conditions. So if you took a Perkins loan, which you would know you did, and you are any of those things, then there might be a way to get your loans forgiven. So everything else is a no-go from my research. Now, if there's some magic formula with unicorns, farting diplomas, and rainbows, somebody let me know. But that's everything I can find that is a legitimate, on-the-books, forgiveness program. Now, what does this mean? This means the people that called you and said, you, sir, qualify for, probably don't know if you qualify for Jack Diddley shit. And they probably don't think you're any of these things either. Because if you were, you wouldn't need them. Because they don't make any money here because you just finished, you stop paying at a certain point when you've met certain criteria. Um, what they probably are is what's called a debt consolidation company. And they have probably have multiple student loans. And this is their estimate 
of what they can get for you if they go to another group and say, we're going to like discharge this guy's debt and put it all under one umbrella. And then they're going to do that under the guise of this is a distressed person who can't make his payments. And then this magic thing will happen and your payment will go down to this. Okay, my instinct is it will ne you'll never see a $60 payment out of this. Uh, they want to get you on board, go to work for you. They'll tell you it's free, but at some point they'll probably want a fee for doing this. Um, they'll probably get you a reduced payment. It'll probably be more like 30 years of your life that you'll be paying on this damn thing for. And in the end, they'll probably destroy your credit while they're at it. That's, that's my guess. Now, if you want to find out the name of this company and tell me the name of this company so I can do further research, I would love to say, here's a company that if you meet certain criteria can make $50,000 worth of your student loan debt, just go away, give them the Jack Spirico seal of approval blessing, or to say, these are lying, thieving pieces of shit that should be run out of the country that will screw you over, steal your money, and ruin your credit. I would be happy to do either one of those. But I can't really do either one of those without knowing exactly who they are and without knowing why they say you qualify. So if you're going to have another conversation with these people, first of all, don't agree to anything. Don't sign anything. okay? And anything like this, you should consult an attorney before you do, by the way. Just saying. $150 bucks to look at something for you uh, will save you a lifetime of misery. But if you want to ask them, why, what exactly why do I qualify? under, And which government program are you talking about? What's the name of the program? We're going to go look at this. And give me the name of these people. I'll let you know what I think of them, and I'll give you an honest opinion. But I can't do that with the information that I have. So that's my that's my guess. My guess is they're scum. They're a debt consolidation company telling you you qualify for something that does not exist. But I could be wrong, and I'm open to that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Carson from Canada. I was just driving and shoveling snow and listening to the radio, and the song American Idiot by Green Day came, came on. And it's a song that I had to change my mind on after a while. At first, I was like, ah, I don't like it because of the name. And then I actually listened to the words, and then I changed my mind on it. Uh, for example, a few stanzas. Welcome to the new kind of tension all across the alienation where everything isn't meant to be okay. Pretty powerful words. And that's exactly what the media and what our government overlords are trying to do to us. They're trying to get us to think that everything isn't okay because, never mind, it's not meant to be okay. So we can't think it's okay because if we start to think things are okay, then maybe we start to calm down. If we start to calm down, maybe they can't run all, ram all this BS down our throats that we don't want. So just something to think about that came to mind when I was listening to a song. Hope you're having a great one. Bye. I'm really glad you made that call, Carson, because it gives me a, a floor to stand on to talk about something that's been going through my head this weekend. Uh, watching all the crap on Facebook, people saying football sucks, don't pay attention to it. People saying football is the most important thing in the world, please pay attention to it or you're going to die. Uh, people worrying that Katy Perry was doing the, the Super Bowl halftime show and she was godless, whatever. I mean, jeez. Um, by the way, how about that Super Bowl? Uh, that was the most disinterested I was ever in a Super Bowl. There's not two teams I could actually care less about than the Seahawks and the Patriots, but 
seeing Tom Brady, Brady you know, join a very exclusive club and the way that it happened at the end was kind of cool. Um, and by the way, if you think the flake gate matters, you got a personal problem. You're not really focused on the world as a whole. And all of this stuff that's been going on, like this, this constant thing with the flake gate, right? So I don't really care except that it won't go away. Like the drama around the flake gate continues. No, it doesn't. No one gives a shit about this, really. Except the media that keeps doing it over and over again. And it's, it's in politics. It's in the news. It's in the media. Somebody sent me a great video. This was a great video. It was the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch, right? From the 70s. And they sent it to me because they said, check this out. Right now, they're freaking out. There was like 14 cases of measles, and they're blaming all the parents that don't vaccinate for these 14 cases of measles, where if the freaking vaccine worked, the kids with the vaccine shouldn't be getting the freaking measles in the first place, and you vaccinate your kid and leave mine alone. And they're having all this hysteria over it, and it could kill you, and you'll die. Ah! So it was an episode of the freaking Brady Bunch where every one of these kids got the measles. And everybody was happy, and Mom was drinking her 47th cup of coffee of the day when they were discussing it, like always, and what have you. And you know what? That Because the mindset in the 70s of the kids getting the measles was, eh, sucks, but no big deal. And it was the whole, I didn't watch it, but I kind of skipped a few places to see. It revolved around choosing a doctor to come check out the kids. Yeah. See, this is the reality. And what came into my head this, 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 this weekend, and I was actually, like, woke up thinking about this. <laughs> Supa de mierda de toro, right? Soup of bullshit, right? Supa de mierda de toro, okay? Yes, I speak Spanish. And you know what? It's cool to speak second languages. Don't bash people that speak more than one language. Some of you guys are a little bit too, well, nuts. Anyway, so I'm thinking about supa de mierda de toro, bullshit soup. And I'm thinking this is exactly what we're being fed constantly. A soup of bullshit. All of this stuff crammed together. We have people on the right openly at this point calling for religious persecution. And yeah, that's what you're doing when you post your memes about we should cite these Muslims for what they are. Okay, yeah, you know who said we should do that? A guy named Hitler talking about the Jews. This is the path we're on now because we're being fed bullshit soup. Okay? We have this, this flame war going on about Chris Kyle. He was a soldier, he did his job, and he was a liar. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, the people that are upset with me right now want to turn me off, give me a second. If those on the right who are so pro-war, if Chris Kyle had come home, written the book he did, told the lies he told within that book and around that book, and later removed from that book, but his message was anti-war, the people so on his side right now would never let it go, but they'll let it go for this. What do I think we should do about Chris Kyle? I think if you want to see his movie, you should go see it. I think if you like the guy, you like the guy. I don't even hate the guy. I would just acknowledge that he was untruthful multiple times about things that never happened. Things that other people have lost their careers over. Okay, And a guy that had no need to do it. So, I'm not going to wave the flag and stand with Chris Kyle on Chris Kyle Day, okay? It's part of the bullshit soup. It is. And, 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 and this is what I see in my head of a political cartoon like a Dilbert strip. It's like a, a, a big building, right? And it's called McChoices. These are your choices. And there's two lines for everything, line A and line B. And everybody's in these lines arguing 
about how evil the people in the other line are. But in the end, when they get up to the counter, they all order the house special, Supa de Mierda de Toro. Bullshit soup. You're all consuming bullshit soup at a rapidly alarming level, and you're just angry that the other person is in a different line to get the same product. Bullshit soup. And yes, this is what the government does. This is what the media does. This is the way that things are. This is, this is America today. And we are headed down a very dark path. Because as long as we blame each other for everything, the people doing it get off scot-free. And there's something that Carson said there that I agree with the spirit, but not the totality of the statement. That if we all think everything is okay, you're right. Because if we, didn't, if we weren't panicked and reactionary about everything, if every time somebody said something, right, or somebody showed their ass in a way that we found distasteful, Right or, or or whatever it is that upsets us. Somebody somewhere had an opinion about something, and now I'm angry and indignant. Some celebrity said that they think guns should be banned. Do you know what I think about that? I don't give a shit. You know why? They're not in office. To, to, to tell me that, that the celebrity doesn't like guns, it's like telling me grass is green. It's the, one of the most liberal socialist demographics of human beings on the planet. Sure, there's some there we can point to as exceptions. You know, Tom Selleck for one. But it doesn't matter. The majority of them are anti-gun. So when Liam Nielsen says there's too many guns in America, I'm not surprised. I don't care. Well, I'm not going to go see Taken 3. Well, I wasn't ever going to go see Taken 3 in the first place. Generally, most movies, by the time you get to part 3, suck. If it doesn't work for The Hangover, it ain't going to work for Taken. So I don't care. I'm not going to get bogged down in these things. You know, uh, you, you, the, the Chris Kyle thing is a perfect example. You have to pick a side. No, I don't. I can be pretty neutral. I can say, hey, I respect the guy. I honor his service. I get, I get the hardship of being someone that has to serve in that capacity. There's no doubt this man risked his life. There's no doubt that this man did his duty, as he was expected. But there's also no doubt he didn't try to capitalize on it and sensationalize that which did not need to be sensationalized. He wasn't sent to New Orleans, right? That was a lie. He didn't kill a bunch of people outside of a gas station. The police sent him on his way and told him he was a good guy and went on. I, it, it, these are things that didn't happen. And I don't think he punched Jesse Ventura in the face in a, in a bar. And he either lied about it or he punched a senior citizen in the face. You take your pick. So this is not a Boy Scout. But we don't expect Navy SEALs to be Boy Scouts. So why are we going to fight about it? Why are we going to argue about it? Why are we going to be indignant about it? Because we're all sucking down a great big bowl of sopa de mierda de toro. Bullshit soup. And that's what the whole media has become. There's even a TV show called The Soup that talks about all kinds of like reality TV moments and stuff like that. And it's a perfect analogy. You stir it all together, you mislead people, and you make them fight with each other. And this is where I'm going to get back to where I disagree with Carson. If we all thought everything was okay. But see, the thing is, not everything is okay. There's so many things that are not okay. But we have been fed so much bullshit soup, we either do not focus on those things, or we say it's somebody else's problem. There are people who did serve this country honorably, as honorably as anybody else that's famous for doing it, sleeping on the streets, and that is not okay. That is not okay. But we have a government that tells us the way you fix that is through government programs, which, by the way, don't work. And your government's the one that made those people into what they are today. 
that put them out of service without the right concern for them after they left, and they're, the government that caused it is supposed to fix it, that is not okay. There are so many things that are not okay in this country today. But we want to fight about bullshit soup. And which spoon you use. Do you eat your bullshit spoon with the left hand? Oh, you're scum. You eat your bullshit soup with the right hand? Oh, well, you're, we got to unite together. Everybody should eat their bullshit soup with their right hand. We, we, we have a government hell-bent on complete and total surveillance of the country, hell-bent on completely controlling all retirement, forcing people to put their money into government bonds. It's proposing new crap after new crap. And the people with the right side of bullshit super just different crap, adding to the misery of this country. It's not okay. But instead, we want people to be afraid of Ebola, which is in sharp decline even in Africa now that Jack told you, don't worry about it. Ah, we have to worry. Oh, I got to watch TV every five minutes. Bullshit soup. How much TNA will Katy Perry show in the Super Bowl commercial? Oh! She's gone. I don't care. If you don't like Carrie Perry, don't watch it. By the way, she sucked, but the lion thing was cool. Right? I mean, the lion thing she wrote, that was awesome animatronics. She sucked, in my opinion. You might like her. That's your opinion. If you're worried about who's in the Super Bowl halftime show, beyond whether you personally want to watch it or not, you got too much time on your hands. You're being misdirected. You're being in a words of the Green Day song, an American idiot. Because you're easily controlled. And you're concerned with the manner in which the person next to you consumes their bullshit soup. Stop it. No, not everything's okay. But all the things that they're upsetting you about are not the important things. I, I, I could see this going a bunch of ways, this little bullshit soup analogy. There's McChoices, and everybody's in line. And there's line A and line B, and everybody's like booing and hissing each other across the thing. Everybody's getting their bowl of bullshit soup up at the front with a right-handed or a left-handed spoon. And some guy says, you know what? I don't think I want this. I'm going to go to Arby's. And somebody screams, you're wasting your vote! You quitter! You quit fighting! Yeah? That's what I see. And I see it in politics, and I see it in media, and I see it in all the messaging to the American people today, because we've accepted it. And as I've said before, it's not just because we get the information from them. We're told what information we want. We're told what questions we want answered. You're not asking your own questions, America. Ask your own questions. When a TV tells you something's important, nine times out of ten, just understand that it's not. The stuff that's really important, they don't talk about. You want to talk about how our veterans are treated? Get your ass up and go find one and help them out. Don't post a meme on Facebook about how Obama sucks. You think somebody in, 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 in this country is being persecuted for something they shouldn't be? Stand beside them. Not with a picture. With money or actions and deeds. Work to change it for them. Work to help them. Pay attention to what really matters. And the most things that are the most important to you are in your backyard. Focus on your backyard, not mine. Focus on your opinion, not mine. You don't agree with me on Chris Kyle? We're not going to fight about it. I don't care. It's not that important to me. It's really not. I'm not going to extend hero worship to anyone because of numbers alone. You have your heroes, I have mine. That's okay. That's one of the biggest things we need to learn about in America. If we stop consuming the bullshit soup, 
if we would stop for five minutes, we'd figure out we don't have to agree about everything to get along. But we've been so polarized, anybody that disagrees with us must be fought and resisted. But yet we don't fight and we don't resist. We talk and we get angry. And then we become controlled. I'm just suggesting maybe you try another way. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Mike from L.A. I have a problem with gophers in my yard, and it don't look like one gopher. It looks like a lot of gophers. Um, I have really good soil, and I'd like to use it. But is a raised bed with some hardware, hardware cloth underneath, is that really my only uh, option right now to build these gophers? Maybe you can help me with some alternatives. Thanks for all you do, Jack. So my experience with little critters that go under the soil and dig holes has really been more about groundhogs. Don't you have Groundhog Day? Isn't that cool? There's more winter coming, according to Puxatani Phil, by the way. So I'm more of a groundhog guy. Not really a gopher guy. And I had a lot of experience with gophers. So I figured I would find a member of the new member of the expert council to give you some advice on gophers. And uh, we'll call this a temporary honorary membership. And uh, the guy that I could think of right away that knows the most about gophers... Bill Murray. Some of you know exactly what's coming and where it's from. And in any event, after the last segment, it'll be a good little lighthearted thing, and then I'll come back with some of my actual advice on gophers. But Mr. Bill Murray, how would you handle the gopher? <laughs> I have to laugh. <laughs> because I don't finesse myself. My foe, my enemy, is an animal. And in order to conquer him, I have to think like an animal without the video of what he's actually doing, which I'll explain for those who have never seen it. But in a weird way, that was more sadistic and messed up and humorous uh, by not knowing what was going on and hearing all those weird sounds and all that uh, a comedian like Bill Murray is, is capable of doing where others, I think, would fail. So in, in the movie, this is called Caddyshack. It's an old movie from the 80s, one of the classic 80s movies. Um, Bill Murray is a groundskeeper, and he's trying to kill this gopher. And at this point, he's kind of tweaked out because he's failed so many times. And what you hear him talk about, the rabbit and the squirrel, he's making figurines out of C4 plastic explosive, and he's going to you know, shove uh, blasting caps in their butts and put them down into the gopher mound and set off the explosion. And if you've never seen Caddyshack, it's worth a watch just to laugh. And uh, I won't tell you what the explosion does in the end, but it's kind of cool. Anyway, so... Of course, it's just for humor, but on some levels, what Bill Murray's saying here in this is the truth. 
coexistence is possible, but probably not preferable. So if you want to coexist with the Gophers, the only thing I know to do is what you've said, build deep raised beds with hardware cloth bottoms so they can't get in there at the tender shoots and, and come up from underneath. And that's worked well for a lot of people. Otherwise, got to make the gopher dead. That's what you got to get inside his pelt and crawl around and know what it is to be a gopher. No. But, I mean, to me, the gopher has either got to go or you've got to defend the plants from the gopher. And I, I've never dealt with this. I really don't know, like, if you do raise beds, are you still going to have problems with them, like, coming into the bed? So, like, a twenty-two or a really good pellet gun might be a good idea. A big-ass mean tomcat might work. Um, a dog uh, that would chase them and eat them and destroy them and kill them and consume them might be useful. Um, you could get a gopher snake or a couple of them and stick them down in the... I'm serious, by the way. I really am. I don't know where you'd procure gopher snakes because uh, buying captive bred ones and letting them loose in the wild is probably illegal and definitely not a good idea. But if there were gopher snakes around your area uh, or bull snakes, which are the same family and will actually do and exist and live the same way as, as gopher snakes, and you were to procure a couple from one location in the wild and set them free in your location in the wild... Um, once they get in that burrow, they do what they do, and you're probably not going to see many gophers. Um, another reason not to kill snakes. Now, I will put a caveat in there. Last year, I killed two rat snakes. Um, one full of eggs in my chicken coop, and one in my brooder full of chicks. So at that point, they become a menace, and they have to go. And I am a guy that loves snakes. I've loved snakes my whole life. I've, I've bred snakes. Uh, but I'd kill a raccoon if it was killing my animals, so you got to go. So that's how I feel about the gopher. Either you're going to wire in and protect, or you got to make the gopher dead. Uh, most of the poisons are probably not a good idea. You're probably more likely to poison something by accident than the actual gopher. Uh, the old flood them out uh, technique of sticking a garden hose in the hole and filling it up with water and either drowning them or having them pop out usually doesn't work. Uh, believe it or not, water actually drains into the ground. Uh, so you know it might be an hour before water starts to come out of another hole somewhere, and there's probably a dry spot somewhere, and that gopher's probably across the street digging his butt or something while you're spending all that water to do nothing. Um, so either you have to protect your plants from the gopher, or you have to bring in something that eats gophers, or you have to terminate the gopher. And I do recommend uh, a pellet gun or a .22, depending on your situation, or a mean dog that knows how to kill gophers, or something like that. A rat terrier would probably work out really well. Uh, above plastic C4 explosives, in spite of what Bill Murray says. Anyway, with that, let's have another call. And if you've gotten rid of gophers uh, successfully, I'd love to hear from you. I know they have those plunger traps, uh, but I, in all the reviews I've read, it's like, great idea, never seems to work. So if you successfully eradicated the gopher, please tell us how you did that. Let's take another call. Jack, you want to know who's going to win the Super Bowl? I'll tell you. The winner of the Super Bowl will be Budweiser. Hey, Jack, this is Eric from California, and I have a question about neo-fascism. Why does it seem to be so repression-oriented? Background. I believe you have described fascism as an alliance between political and business interests that enforce and exploit the differences between classes or groups to further their agendas, and you have described neo-fascism as the form of fascism where the business interests hold the seat of power instead of the political interests. What do business interests stand to gain by a police state? Thank you. 
It's a great question. It really is. And it requires a different type of thinking and an understanding that not everybody that you think is involved with the grand conspiracy may be involved, in fact, with the grand conspiracy that really is an open-ended, obvious thing that's going on, which is more totalitarian control and rule by the financial elite. This nation is an oligarchy. I don't care what you think it's supposed to be. This nation is an oligarchy. The people with money have the power in this country, and they exercise that power through our government, and it is neo-fascism. And the, 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 the definition that the caller gave is absolutely correct, and it's absolutely textbook. Uh, we have been led to believe that fascism is putting Jews in a concentration camp. That that's what fascism is. Well, Mussolini was a fascist, and he didn't put anybody in any concentration camps that I know of. And he certainly didn't round up the Jews and put them there. So that's not fascism. That's what a fascist government did. And fascist governments run the gamut from being extremely violent, murderous regimes to, you know, soft, gentle, murderous regimes like, oh, our country. Um, there's an interesting graphic going around on Facebook right now, and it shows like, you know, a shark kills five people a year, and it shows like horses kill a couple hundred and, and what have you. And my thought when I look at that graphic, I'd love to see somebody put the government number on there. What's, how many, how many people a year are killed by government? And I don't mean our government, I don't mean law enforcement, I mean all government actions, wars, genocides, just a total, what is the total number of people killed in 2014 by governments? With an S, right? It'd be an interesting thing to see and think about. Anyway, so, Why would a oligarchy want a police state? Because they control the police. Now, let's just cut something off sh short here. That does not mean that the, the monster might not turn on Frankenstein. Okay, It doesn't mean that the financial elites might not at some point create a police state so powerful that, that it turns on its maker. But just rest assured they have contingencies. There's not a person in this country worth over a billion dollars that couldn't be out of this country and somewhere else and still have billions of dollars in a nanosecond. So if you understand, they're not just active here. They're active in Europe. They're active in Asia. They're active in Africa. They have bases of operations all over the world. Some of these families are relatively new. Some of them are among the oldest uh, wealthy families in the world that are part of this, this cabal. And it is simply the case that when you have a certain amount of money, you have a certain amount of power, and power not only corrupts, but it also attracts. So there's a point where I get to a certain size, a certain capability, a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of control, and I can only do so much more on my own, and I have to work with other greedy rich people to be able to do that. So and to understand greedy rich person, what I mean by that is somebody that has billions of dollars, and that's not enough. That's not enough. I want more, and I want to control other people. And this is the key. Why would they want a police state? Because they want control. They want to control other people. It's not enough just to have money. These are people that to, money to them is like a score in a video game. No matter how high it goes, they always want it to be more. It's all they know. And But what they end up doing is at some point they go into this, like, philanthropic mindset, you know, like they're going to help people. And they start realizing most people are idiots. They need me to tell them how to live. And then they say, well, I want to get this new product or this new service or something done. And there's all these pesky competitors with all these radical ideas about other ways to do things, and I want them to go away. So I'll have my, my, my cops, right, which are the government as a whole, 
write laws that say they're not allowed to do these things, or here's all the hurdles they have to clear before they can. We've already done that, and we have so much money, we can even put a few hurdles in front of ourselves, and we'll just buy them off. We'll pay to have the laws there, and then we'll pay to circumvent them, and that'll keep those pesky assholes out of the way. Well, if your apparatus of that control mechanism is government, then government, and this is what people just don't want to understand this, because the, 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 the realization here is, is, is horrific when you really think about it. Government's only play is the rule of law through the threat of violence at the point of a gun. So if you're going to play that game, if you're going to be Monsanto and you're going to patent a life form, the only way you can enforce it if you're using the state is the, is, is the threat of violence at the point of a gun. So you have to have a police state to have control by the financial elite through the state itself. Because you, you, we want to be, we've been led to believe that these rich people are all like the, you know, uh, the John Galtz of the world. The super capitalists that just want to do great things with their money and be left alone and not have it stolen by government. The rich love to have their money stolen by government. Because they get a bigger say. And they don't get that much if it's stolen. They willingly give it for the, the, the sole purpose of getting more money. See, they think different than most people. Most people don't understand the concept of return of and on investment. So when we pay our taxes and we look at a legitimate service like a street and a road, which I know libertarians will tell you that we could build roads without government, and we probably could, but if there is a legitimate activity for the state, building a roads is, is, is up there on the ones that exist. So if we looked at the way that we get that road, the way a rich person does, we'd say, well, last year in gas taxes and other extorted taxes, I paid a total of $1,000 of my tax money went toward the construction, building, and maintenance of roads. And a rich person would say, That's totally worth it. Not just for convenience sake, like because my trucks roll down that road, and every truck that rolls down that road every day makes me a thousand dollars. And when it comes back, it makes me another thousand dollars. Then I have a thousand trucks. It's pretty good ROI. Happy to pay for it. And, and when it gets to the point, well, that rich guy's paying a hundred grand for it. Yeah, sure. Still happy. Hundred thousand dollars, ten million dollar return of investment every year. Fine. That's how they see it. So when they do have to pay some of the higher taxes, because they, most of them they don't pay. They have loopholes they've written for themselves through their, 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 their emissaries, which are your elected officials, that have given them loopholes you'll never see. Look up how much tax General Electric paid last year. Oh, it's because they're Obama's buddy. No, it's because they control the whole damn thing. Okay? They pay shit. Look what Apple paid. It's a pittance compared to what Apple made. Look what any major corporation, big corporations actually pay. It's a pittance. If you look at a percentage of their earnings, how much they shelter outside of the country, while they won't let you open a bank account in another country. These corporations shelter billions. So they don't care. They don't care. They just want control. And they want more control. And they want more money. And they want more power. And the peace that they give to the state It's like hiring someone to them. So most of us would say, if somebody came to your house and started doing work for you in your house, folding sheets, ironing your clothes, like a maid, and you had to pay them for doing this, you would see that as an expense. 
These people see that type of an expenditure as an investment. It's only done for the purpose of gain. So of course they want a police state. Because how else will you enforce your will on other people without a police state? Well, then you'd have to do it yourself, and that gets kind of messy. Because then people have a tendency to resist. And then people tend to have a, a legitimate path of resistance. If I just decide I want to control how you live in your home, then I don't want you to eat a certain thing, or I want you to have to eat a certain thing, or I don't want you to know certain information or whatever, and I come to your house and I disrupt your life, I'm trespassing, I'm invading, I'm violating your personal space. I need the legitimate cloak of government to invade your space, and then it's acceptable. And then other people say, why can't you just get along? Why can't you just follow the law? If you don't like the law, why don't you just work to change it? Oh, I don't know, because I'm some broke-ass, middle-income guy trying to keep his head afloat, trying to grow a couple extra vegetables in my front yard, and I got a city breathing down my throat, and I've got problems at all different levels. I work to change what? My right to do what I want to on my land? Why should I have to work to change that? Why doesn't that just exist? Because this is the reality, and this is what we have to understand. The state is the monster. And the oligarchy is Dr. Frankenstein. And at some point, and at certain segments, the monster does have its own life. It does make its own decisions. And it does choose to strangle people, to murder people, to kill people, and then to turn around and do something just like the monster that seems gentle and benevolent. And you're going to always see the following. Leadership is emulated. Okay? If you want something to be emulated, you demonstrate. Demonstrate to emulate. That's that's something I'd like to get into people's heads for the positive. But understand, every sword cuts both ways. So when, when we demonstrate to emulate, we, we show people how to be liberty-oriented, rugged individualists, critical thinkers. But what is our government leading us to see? Safety at all costs, complete control, and more benefits to everybody. More redistribution. So if the federal government is leading with that mentality, the state governments are following that, 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 that leadership and emulating it. And then it's being emulated at the city level and the county level, etc. But of course the rich want that. What good is it to buy a, a regulation unless that regulation will be enforced? And again, this is you've got to understand this. Because it will start to make you question the need for any new law. Whenever you, we need to ban this or ban that, ban the burqa. You don't know who's under there. You want to ban somebody's clothing? Are you, are you freaking nuts? What, what is wrong with you when you think that way? That's how I feel. Like, I think it's, I think it's oppressive. I don't like it, but I'm not going to ban somebody's choice of clothing no matter what it is. Because I don't want you banning mine. When you think there should be a law, ask yourself this question. Are you willing to kill to enforce it? <gasps> That's so extreme, Jack. Come on. No. No. That's all laws. That's why That's why the guy died in, in New York City. The chokehold incident, I can't breathe, blah, blah, blah. Okay? That officer did not violate the law. What he did was legal. The grand jury's decision, whether it should be or should not be, total different discussion. But the grand jury's decision there was just. 
He was given an order by his superior, by the way, who was a black female, I'm just saying, okay, to arrest the individual. The individual resisted arrest, and he used force to obtain arrest. The individual he was using force on had a cardiac arrest and died. But let's say it was different. Let's say instead of just being taken down and struggling a little bit, let's say the guy was willing to fight back and said, if you put your hands on me, I am a big guy, and I'm going to rip your head off. And the cop, and everybody else goes, well, that guy, he's adversarial. He wants to fight. Yeah, but why does he want to fight? Because he's resisting arrest for selling a cigarette. So are we willing to have a law that says the state can use force up to and including death to require you to comply with a law to prevent you from selling a cigarette? And if you're not, then you're going to accept this, that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen more than if you were willing to, to, to kill somebody over it. What if the only thing you could do is write him a ticket, and he just he said, I don't care, and put the ticket in his pocket and went back to selling him? You write him another ticket, fine, right? If he doesn't pay the ticket, are we willing to go arrest him to force payment? Then we, then we have to be willing to kill over that. When we put a restriction in place... In our country, regardless of the penalty that it, that it incurs, what we are saying is failure to comply will be met with force, and additional failures to comply shall constitute greater offenses, and those greater offenses will constitute the use of greater force up to and including incapacitation or death. Think about the next time you say that we should have a law or something should be banned. That's the only way the government enforces its will. The threat of violence at the point of a gun with the ultimate result potentially being death and at least loss of physical liberty. Incarceration. We have a word for taking people where they don't want to go at the point of a gun. It's called kidnapping. But when the state does it, we call it arrest. Now this isn't like a, a Puritan, puritanical anarchy rant here, guys. If you try to kill a child in front of me, I will in fact kill you back. If I catch you in the act of molesting a child, you better hope to God there's a cop there because I might beat you to death. All right, I am willing to kill somebody to prevent them from molesting a child. I am willing to kill someone to prevent them from raping a woman. You come into my house, I am willing to kill you to defend my life and my property and my ability to continue to take care of my family. There are things I am willing to kill someone for. And most of you feel the same way. And there are things that I am willing to use different levels of force for. But unless I think my life or safety are in actual danger, I am not willing to use physical force. Because I know where it could lead. You've insulted somebody. I don't like that. I tell you to apologize. You don't. I say you better apologize. You say F off. And I say hold on, bud. Right? And then I say physically, you know what, if you're not going to apologize... I can beat an apologize, apology out of you. You know why I don't do that? Not just because I'm a little bit more level-headed as I've gotten older, but because that fight could break down into something lethal. I'm not willing to kill over somebody insulting somebody, so I'm not willing to use force. I might correct them. I might point out to them that they're being an ass. But I'm not willing to aggress upon them. Now they aggress upon me, now I'm in a defensive mode. This is not how the state works. The state says you'll comply, you don't comply, force, immediate. Destroy your life, destroy your wealth, destroy your freedom, and physically attack you if you don't comply. And there is no law 
if you violate it for long enough and fail to comply for long enough that they won't use physical violence on you. Show me one if you believe there is. So why would they want it? Because it's the only way you can control a population. And if you're going to pay for laws, you need someone to do your bidding. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Richard. I just wanted to comment on the uh, last two feedback shows about the millennials and, and the kind of the issues that we're having. I myself, I guess, can be counted as a millennial. But I, I feel like those in my generation and, and the uh, overlay that comes a little bit before and after are confusing what, you know, impossibility in, in, in uh, you know, what their futures hold and everything like that and, and the kind of dismay that they have with not being able to find that dream job, not being able to find that or found that dream business and or be ultra successful at an early age. Like you said, they look at their parents. Many of them may not be millionaires, but they're doing well enough. They can go on vacations here and there. They're paying off their house. They don't, they're not saddled with massive amounts of debt other than just their mortgage. And they look at that and say, well, it, it's easier for them, you know, just as you pointed out. And I think a lot of people in my gen generation think that, well, it was easier to get that dream job. It was easier to be successful. It was easier to found a successful business in something that they're interested in back then, which it's not. It's always been hard to found a business. It's always been hard to make that business successful. It's always been hard to land your dream job, and it's not any harder now. And, in fact, I actually believe that it's easier in a lot of ways. Sure, there are some doors that are more closed uh, now than there were 20 years ago, but with the coming of the Internet and, and the millennials having grown up, we grew up with the Internet. Uh, people that are in their 40s and 50s, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, aren't as well-versed. Uh, and stick to a lot of them more brick and mortar, and at most maybe have like a Facebook like page that some of their younger employees may have set up for them. But with the Internet, you have a larger access to a customer base than you ever have. You have a better chance of being able to have a little niche business than you ever have. Thirty years ago, there's no way you could have made money, for the most part, you know, making, you know, wool hats and wool mittens that you crochet at home. But now... With things like Etsy and, and other, uh, you know, stores online and things like that and with an online presence and being smart about it, you know, and using SEO and all those other kinds of trips like you talked about in five minutes check, um, you can go out there and you can carve out a decent, a, a living and definitely a, a, a part-time job, a side job that, that earns extra income. You have just such a huge access to a customer base versus 30 years ago when you would have had to have been doing advertisements in newspapers around the country to get access to even you know, one one-thousandth of the same customer base. And as long as you're smart about it and you carve out that niche and you go out and, and you just you find that little area where you can stick yourself in and do well. Well, in spite of the fact that that caller uh, found out the exact length of duration that I have the recording set to and exceeded it, because I didn't cut him off there, that was just like... Okay, you've run up enough minutes on my 800 number, and the machine cuts them off. Um, he made very good points, and that's why I wanted to play that. I don't have a ton to add to this because the points are what I would say and, and much of what I have said. I do want to add a couple things, though. I think one of the reasons that people that are graduating from college now and have been graduating over the last 10 years feel like, hey, look, where's my dream job? 
Where is this? This is because that's what sold them on taking on forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars worth of debt. And I don't want. To, I'm sick of people going. You know what made them do it? When you're seventeen, eighteen years old, and you're a good kid, and you follow direction your whole life, and your dad and your mom say, "Son, go get good grades. Do what you're supposed. It's okay." Take, yes, you're making them do it. You're making them do it. So then they were told, "When you do this, you'll get a good job." They get out of school and go. Okay, I, I, I now owe 50 grand. I have a degree in something functional, something useful, business administration, whatever. Okay, I did what I was supposed to. I got freaking A's in school. Where's my job? Oh, you got to work hard for it. That's not what you said when you told. I, how do I pay for this shit now? Of course they feel distraught. And But don't, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you people that say stupid shit like no one made them do it. If that kid took on debt at 17, 18, 19 years of age as a high school graduate guided by their parents, yes, someone made them do it. Well, I can't make my son even clean up his room. Well, maybe that person can. But maybe they should be more strong-willed. And you probably bitch about your kid being strong-willed. Yes, we made them do it. We marketed to them from the time they were in second grade. Every child should go to college. They took the opportunity out of that statement about 25 years ago. It used to be every child should have the opportunity to go to college. No, it just became every child should go to college. When you take a person and you give them authority figures and you say, this is a wise teacher who will direct you in the ways of the world, sit down, here's a pill if you can't sit down, and do what they say, and if you get a good letter... Next to your name, you've done well. You get a gold star, you know. You didn't, you didn't get in trouble and have to go sit, sit in the corner, get sent to the principal. You're good, and this is what you're supposed to do next. And this is what you're supposed to do next. What do you think the good student's mindset is as a, as a senior in high school? I'm supposed to go to college. That's okay. They, everybody tells me it's okay. Well, you should know better. You, you didn't know. The people that say that, you didn't know better when you were 18. You didn't take on the debt because you didn't want to go to school. Or no one told you to. Or you couldn't get in. We have, this older generation, we have very selective memories. We have very selective memories. I didn't do this. Yeah, you did. I never. Yes, you did. Nine times out of ten, when a 40-year-old man says, when I was a kid, it was different. The ne whatever comes out of their mouth next is bullshit. So you have a generation talked into debt, being bullshitted to by the generation ahead of them, who have gotten through the trials, and they're distraught. Yeah, they are. And they need to think differently. And everything this caller said is what you need to do. With, 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 with a, a, a $10 website product, So, I mean, it's like a site builder or something like Wix or something like that. Uh, an eBay account and a Craigslist account. And any kind of marketable skill you can come up with, you can probably earn a living. I'm not promising you a great one. But everything you need to know to do this is available for free. All the information on how to do it's available for free online. We should have a generation of entrepreneurs coming up. Because I'll tell you what, the, the kids that are 16, 17, 18 right now, you guys... If you're not rich by 30, it's because you chose not to become rich by 30. Now, if you're 30 and you're not rich, then maybe nobody told you this. 
right? But if you're hearing me now and you're 17, 18 years old, if you want to build wealth in your life, the Internet is the way forward. I know this is a survival show. Gloom and doom, coronal mass ejections. Well, yeah, okay, well, if that happens, then, then you, you know what? Okay, then you have to figure out how to live in your bunker or whatever, right? But right now, we do what we can with what we have. And the people that say stupid shit like, well, when the world ends, whatever, then give me your keys to your car, all right? Just give me your car, because you don't need that. You got an iPhone? Give me that. Give me your iPhone. Give me, give me a refrigerator. All your modern computers, just give me all that shit and, and go live in your bunker now because it's not going to work next year, right? It's nonsense. You kids in your 20s, early 20s and down, so much opportunity because you are not yet burdened with so many of the debts. The kids that are screwed, let me tell you kids, you guys that are 25, 26, 27 years old and you're sitting on that $60,000 worth of debt, it's going to be a lot. You can still do it. It's going to be harder. And you were sold a lie. You were sold a damn lie. And you have every right to be upset about it. But ain't nobody going to fix it but you. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Eric from Indiana. I was hoping you could talk about setting up a farmstead butchering slash food processing facility. Background is we're going to be doing at least 120 meat birds a year. I've got a small egg business. We've got beehives. I'm planting a lot of... Uh, trees and shrubs like a permaculture orchard, garden, I'll be selling garlic. In the next three years, I hope to add at least a milk cow and some hogs. Lately, I've been thinking about how to best process all of the production. I've been thinking about building a 20 by 20 garage type structure dedicated to this and even the possibility of making it so it could pass uh, a health code inspection. Um, with grounds materials, maybe this could be done for five to $10,000. And as a beginner farmsteader slash farmer, I can see this being worth the investment for me and my children. So I just wanted to get your take on it, how you would do it, and uh, maybe if you know some resources, uh, that would help. Thanks a lot for your show. Bye. Well, I, I think you'd find it challenging, especially when you get into slaughter. So now we're not talking about just food uh Uh, food production here. We're not talking about just preparation. We're actually talking about animal slaughter requirements uh, to be USDA certified. Um, I don't think you're going to do it for five to ten thousand dollars. A good commercial grade chicken plucker is over a thousand bucks. Scalding, etc. And and none of that's going to get you there. It's a, it's a whole rigmarole of things you have to do. And here's what I'm going to tell you: in most states. You can do a thousand chickens before you have to be a USDA. It's as you move into different animals that sometimes there's like you can't do it at all or the things become required, etc. But here's how I, I, I'm starting to view this aspect of things. Unless you're big enough to set up a business unit for butchering, processing, slaughtering, you probably shouldn't do your own. You probably should find a facility that specializes in it. So you can focus on the production and marketing of your food. When I look at the work required to butcher a hundred chickens, and I think to myself, if there was a facility here, do it process those birds for three dollars a bird? What, if, <laughs> done. I, if, what, I, I can't even get the wood I pay. No, done. Done. I, I don't, if they're for my own use. 300 bucks, 300 bucks, 
or a day and a half of busting my ass. And why am I growing those birds? Either to sell them, so, a, so now back, see, this is where we have to start thinking more like the people in power. If I'm doing this to make a living, or to make money, then there is a cost associated with every step of the process. And that either means I'm hiring a helper to come work with me, or I'm taking my time that could be doing other things, and I'm doing this instead. So it's far more important to me that if I'm going to raise a thousand chickens a year, and if I'm doing two runs of 500 birds, that the day those 500 birds show up in an ideal situation, I already know where they're going. I know the day they go in the brooder who my customers for those 500 birds are. And if I don't have 500 to sell, maybe I, I only grow 400. Or if I have 400 sold, maybe I put an extra 100 in there because I know I can move them with that kind of a market. If nothing else, I could say, hey, I'll take, take extra bird, I'll give you, if you take extra birds, I'll give you a 10% off or whatever to sell to my existing market. Right? And then I'm, I'm concerned with, do those birds stay alive? I want, I want those birds to be raised in, the, I want the best product possible. And then the product is directly connected to the processing. You scald the bird for too long, the skin doesn't look right. It tears. It's not what the customer expected. So to me, it makes a lot of sense, if you're going to get up to a level where you're producing enough to make a living on, to just factor in the processing in your price. And then grow more animals. Get more customers. Because it's, it, it's, it's like a logarithmic curve here is what we're dealing with. So... Yeah, if I grow a thousand birds and they cost me three dollars a piece to process, right? It's 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 three thousand dollars in cost. But as long as I can push that price onto the consumer, which I'm going to one way or another, and maybe I even take less profit per bird, it's much easier for me to scale from three to four thousand if I don't have to touch the birds when it's time to process them. And when you start looking at cattle and stuff like that. So I think that, don't get me wrong. If you want to do this, we need more of these facilities, right? But I think that if you really want to set up a USDA processing facility, that it has to be run as its own business unit. Um, and it, so you're looking at maybe a couple employees. You have inspections, all that stuff. And you market that as a service. So you might still process your own animals at that point. But there are so many people starting to do this. And when a person specializes in something, they get good and they get fast. And I've seen good processors of chickens. And I consider myself very good at slaughter. I feel like there are very few people in the world that will put the time, the care, and the consideration and the taking that animal's life that I will. That will do it with the level of expertise that I've developed over the years in doing it, and with the least amount of suffering. I believe that I'm very good at that. But when it comes to gutting, plucking, all that stuff, speed-wise, these guys that do this for a living, of course they're better than me. You know, when you have your 10,000 hours in at something, you're a master at it. But when you have 100 hours of something, you're good. When you have 1,000, you're damn good. So I think I would at least... Explore the options, you know. At Perma Ethos, we're like, man, there's, no, there's nothing around here. Well, we found, according to the state of West Virginia, there's no processors for what you want done. We found two. So the state that registers them doesn't know where they are.
So, you know, I look at it this way. So I'd like to run 100 meat chickens a year. I'd like to run 100 meat chickens. I'd like to keep about 30 to 40 for personal use. And I'd like to sell at a very modest profit about 60 to friends and family and, and my other customers. And 100 is probably what I can do on this property. And I could probably do two runs of 100 once I get everything set up to do it. And I just don't want to do it for the next year. I have other things my ducks to focus on. If I have to process those birds, even if it's completely legal, and it is, and even if I have the right equipment which I can buy, I don't want to do it. I don't want to put all that time and effort into that. I want to put my time and effort into managing the animals. That's what I like to do. That's what I'm good at. Managing the animals, controlling the animals, raising the animals, seeing that they're integrated into the system. I don't want to spend two days processing chickens. And in looking around, when I see what a dedicated facility processes for, I can't afford to. I found one place that does rabbits for $250 a rabbit. Done! You know, I, I, I think that that's, that's where we have to start looking more and more as producers. And if we do want to set up that facility, then we have to do it right and we have to do it as a business unit. Everybody looks at Joel Salatin, but very few people actually understand what Joel Salatin does. So Joel Salatin, if they have a function in Polyface Farms, it's run as a business. And if that function can't run as a business unit and make a profit, even an internal one, they don't do it, they have somebody else do it. So processing is seen as a business unit of Polyface. So you might have a producer, a farmer producing in Polyface, and then actually internally paying for the service of processing. And if both of those individuals can't make a profit, then it's a no-go. That's how, if you want a business, you have to think this way. Because everybody thinks it's going to be great, it's going to be easy, There's huge, and there is huge demand. But there's also the biggest demand is on your time. Your time, your talent, your resources, your money. Leverage is the most valuable thing an entrepreneur has. And leveraging employees is difficult because they have all these quirks that they come with. They have to have insurance, and they're sick so they don't show up today, and they never care as much as you do. But a, a contractual partner is a very known leverage tool. When I say to this person, the fact that they're USDA certified tells me I don't know that they have to be doing it, be doing it the right way, but they're doing it adequately. I know that, okay. And when I, I I can go there and look and see, okay, this meets my criteria for for ethical processing. Done. And then when I say here's a thousand birds, and they say two days later they'll all be done, I know they will. And now I just can take that little piece of my my world and not care. So now let's let's run some numbers to understand how this works. So our numbers in running 300 meat chickens in West Virginia, where our birds were costing us eight to nine dollars on average per bird, the total cost to raise them to slaughter weight, eight to nine dollars. The market value of those birds anywhere from twenty to twenty five dollars. All right. Processing fee, let's say it's three dollars a bird. So there's lots of margin left in there, right? Lots of margin. Isn't it easier, so long as I can sell them, 
to just raise more and let somebody else do the slaughter? Shouldn't I be focused on the profit versus the fee? I mean, that's, that's the way, and, and that doesn't mean a small, a small business might not start out doing its own processing. Because that's a great way to get started. You know, you process 300 birds. And, and, and the reason that's great is it's low risk. The law says you can do it. It'll establish a customer base. And you'll decide, do I want to do this or not? And I haven't found a place here, but a lot of places you can rent the equipment very inexpensively. At Ben Falks, they rented the killing cones and a plucker for $25 a day. So if you can find that, then you can try it. Rent it for a couple days, go through it, don't make the big investment, see if it works. But I'm going to tell you, the more I go into volume, the less I want to touch the product once it's completed my part of the equation. Now... When you start talking about food production and all, you're talking about preparation and you know, you're making like apple butters and stuff like that. Then we gotta look at how do we scale into that. Right? And what has, and I think that, I think that as much as our government's done wrong, we have to acknowledge what they've done right. And what they've done with most animals, not all, but most animals, at least enough animals so you can get your feet up wet, And with most, like, kitchen-produced products, as they've left this small niche producer thing at the bottom, where you can test the waters and see if this is right for you, and then as you get to a certain scale, move into more of a production model. Now, what I like to see a lot of these regulations repealed, and if you wanted to set up a facility, I and my customers judge the quality of your production facility, not the USDA, absolutely. Absolutely. But since that's what's there, that's what we have to work with. And that's, you know, earlier when we were talking about the millennials and the way things are. You do what you can with what you have. So I, I know now I've probably gone on for 11 minutes and I'm like discouraged you from, from going forward. I, I don't want you, to, I, I would love it if you were living right down the road from me and set up a USDA facility so I could give you business. But I think if you're only doing it for yourself, going to that level probably doesn't make sense. You have to analyze, and this is the simple way to understand this. So if I spend all this money on this facility, plus all this time that I bill myself for, plus whatever insurances and expenses I have to go, plus inspection facilities and all, what is the actual cost of this? The immediate upfront and the long-term recurring cost of doing this processing. And can I buy it for less somewhere else and not have to worry about it? And can I buy it as a fixed expense per unit versus a fixed expense in volume. In other words, it probably costs me just as much, other than the labor hours, to have that facility to process 200 birds as it does to process 20,000 birds. So if I have a real high peak, well, great. But what about when I say, you know what, I want to take a while off. I still have that expense buried into the business. And now I can't go to Florida for three months and say, screw it, I'm not going to do a run this, this quarter. Right? Seriously, that's how you, you have to think about offloading your risk in business today. The more risk I can defer to somebody else, right, the less risk I incur, and therefore I only focus on the things that I do that are profitable. And I think most small producers are not going to find their processing as being profitable unless they set up a facility. They are, you know, they set up USDA certified slaughter and processing facility. Put some people in it, you have them work every freaking day. Five days a week, Monday through Friday, eight to five. 
and you have when you have animals, you basically have an internal at-cost processing fee that gives you an advantage and more profit on your animals in the marketplace, and you're operating for a profit on everybody else's. And you're very good at what you do. That's my business analysis of this. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Josh. Listen, uh, just got started listening to your uh, spring episode here lately and uh wanted to say that I'm right on track with you there. Um, my question is specifically uh regarding Google culture slash raised bed hybrid. Um, I seen your episode in Arkansas on YouTube where you had buried some wood and then dug a uh or, or installed a um <clears throat> a raised bed on top of that. So what I'd like to find out is the mixture that goes into that raised bed. Um, of course, square foot gardening is calling for all this, you know, peat moss and uh, vermiculite. Um, and I was thinking about just doing a um, a compost and a compost manure. Um, some that's gonna I'm gonna have to buy some that I've been um, making myself over the last couple of years. So just wanted to hear your comments on that. And uh, also as far as um, uh, if it's too late right now to go ahead and plant a cover crop in there, seeing as how it's February now, or um, should I just tarp it and let it go? Thanks for the show. Bye. Um, well, let me tell you what I did in Arkansas, because to this day I've never built beds that were more productive than that. They were, I mean, the production that came out of those was insane. Um, days of cutting peppers and dehydrating peppers. Days and days and days from 18 plants. 18 jalapeno plants, and we had a, a big kitchen island from Ikea, one of the big giant ones, covered a foot and a half deep in the center with jalapenos from a couple days of picking. And by the time we were done, there was more coming. It's like, oh, we got to give some these and bag and give them away. So it worked. So what do we do? We did what looked like standard four foot by ten foot raised beds because they were. We 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 terraced the hill so that it was flat with a little bit of a back cut so the water kind of sunk in. We dug a hole about three and a half foot deep till we hit the, the the bedrock basically. And when the when the excavator started hitting the base rock, we stopped. We filled that with rotted wood. We threw the subsoil back on top of it, the sub and a little bit of topsoil that was just on top of it. And what did I fill it with? Pure compost. In Hot Springs, there was a compost facility that you could have all of the compost you wanted for free if you would load it yourself or you could pay them to load you. So I needed to lose some weight. So I went out there with a shovel and a manure fork and what have you, and I would just back up to the pile they had for self-loading and I'd talk to fellow gardeners, and I'd load that truck. And I brought truckload after truckload after truckload home, and it was probably 12 inches of solid compost. And almost everything was amazing. There was something about that compost, and I have different theories as to what, whether it's some herbicidal residue, which I really don't think was the case, or uh, something about that compost that made tomatoes unhappy. I had a lot of blight problems and things like that, which I think would have went away. Uh, if I had stayed there. But tomatoes didn't do well. And the reason I don't think it was an herbicide residue issue is because peppers did. Now, they're both in the nightshade family, 
And if there's an herbicide that has a negative effect on a nightshade, it should probably have a negative effect on all nightshades. And the pepper plants were four feet tall. And when it would rain, they would self-prune because the peppers would get so heavy, the branches would break off and immediately start growing another branch and put buds on and start putting more peppers on, like in a month. It was, it was nuts. So you can use a pure compost mix. And if you read the Square Foot Gardening book and you, you read Meryl Bartholomew's talks about, okay, here's this, this, this one-third, one-third, one-third mix of this, this perfect soil, you know. Uh, but then he immediately says, and when we go to the third world and we do relief work and set up stuff there and they're like, we can't afford all this, we just use 100% compost. They just get every bit of organic matter that they can. They make great big piles. They make compost. They throw it in and they grow stuff. So you can certainly you know, use primarily a compost or compost and topsoil mix. Now, if you're doing raised, boxed raised beds, which I've kind of fallen out of love with, but I, you know, I put some in here, so I have, I, I see a place for them. You do have to kind of build the soil up. If you're doing a hoogle culture raised bed, though, and you have freestanding bed, you may not need to bring in anything. And when, when, when you look at hoogle culture done on a large scale, it is a soil building technology is what it really is. So we, we excavate an area a bit, we put a bunch of wood in, and we put the dirt that we took out right back on it. We just use that. If there's topsoil, we pull the topsoil aside, dig away the subsoil, put the, put the subsoil first, and then put the topsoil on top. So you may not need to bring in anything. You know, I watched Sepp Holzer put in about a kilometer of, of Hugel. Actually, I think it was more like two and a half kilometers of Hugel beds in Montana. You, you're not going to put compost on that. He used the native soil, and it blew up after you know after he went away. So you can use the dirt, right? Building soil comes from organic matter and dirt. But if you're actually going to have to fill something, like I did, and like you might, if you want to do them with a frame box, then you know you're you're going to have to bring something in. And compost is is great. Um, some people will tell you you can't grow in pure compost. Those people are incorrect, as my results have shown. But Getting some sand and dirt and mineral and stuff in there is probably not a bad idea either. So, and that's kind of what we did, except that we ended this kind of layered effect. And we grew a lot of cover crops and put them to the ground and put them to the ground. For you, you got to look at what's your long-term goals. The issue right now is, unless you're in the deep south, not much will germinate right now. So you can throw down like white clover seed or something like that now, and it'll germinate when it wants to. It's not going to die. Right, so if you put down a layer of like white clover and then a, a little bit of a mulch over top of it to protect it and left it there, it'll grow when it's damn good and ready. And I am kind of leaning toward with, with the raised beds that I'll have here, the conventional vegetables, going straight Dutch white clover or any clover you can get to grow, and keeping it you know trimmed at a, at a reasonable height. And you cut a hole in it, you put your plants or your seeds right down in that hole, and you let the clover close up around and keep the weeds out. It provides nitrogen, attracts beneficial insects. What more could you want? Why mulch every year? So you could do that, but you're probably better off waiting a bit to do that. Um, if you put something down now, like what might grow for you would be like Caius oat, uh, an annual rye grass, an actual rye. Things you going to have very big root systems if they successfully grow, and you're going to have to chop them down because they're probably not going to summer kill for you. So you're going to have to turn the soil, which is okay to do once or twice. But once you get the bed established, you should go to no-till. So it's up to you whether it's worth doing at, at all right now. Or you can do something really easy to kill. 
right? Like uh, a winter pea. Because sooner or later you're going to hit heat and it's going to die. The, the, the issue, though, is that the timing's probably not right. The best thing you could do right now is when you're done with your beds, put a layer of mulch on them. And if you want to control weeds until you're ready to plant and go to your cover crop, tarp it. Throw a tarp over it, it won't, nothing will grow. Lots of little soil creatures will grow, but you won't have any sprouts and you won't have any weeds to contend with when you're, when you're ready and your timing's right. Let's take another, uh, actually before we take another call, I've got, uh, an expert counsel response from Stephen Harris. Uh, this one was emailed to me and I punted it over to Steve. So he's just going to read the question, give you the answer and I'll be back with, uh, I think I have two more and we wrap up for the day. Hello, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer a question. This is one I got by email that was forwarded to me by Jack. Steve, can you please explain to me and the TSP listeners why these new, expensive, NOCO genius battery chargers claim to be rapidly charging batteries two times faster than traditional linear battery chargers? And they seem to offer similar charging maintenance and desulfurization features as the larger Schlumacher-type chargers, but yet the NOCO chargers have a much lower amperage option. Is there some newer, more efficient technology that is allowing the NOCO Genius charger to use fewer amps and to rapidly charge batteries two times faster? Or is this a gimmick that won't really offer any advantage over the clunkier-looking Schlumacher models? Let's start off with a clunkier comment. Schlumacher is a computer-controlled multi-stage charger. NOCO is a computer-controlled multi-stage charger. I told you guys all I want you to have computer-controlled three-stage battery chargers for all of your batteries and don't accept anything less. The NOCO 7-amp charger is $125. The Schlumacher 6-amp charger is $29 at Walmart. That's basically $100 less for uh, the same thing. The NOCO Genius 26-amp charger is $353. The Schumacher 40-amp, you know, NOCO 26, Schumacher 40 charger is $109. And it's on battery1234.com and also on Amazon. I really despise the NOCO Genius chargers. They are a ripoff. They are charging you many times more money just because it says genius on it, and that's it. You're paying three, four times more money of hard-earned money that you can use for many other things in your preparations just because it says genius on it, and that's all. Now, yes, the new chargers are more efficient at charging than the old linear dumb Chargers. The old chargers would say they would dump 10 to 20 amps into a battery and they would keep on doing this until it reaches a certain voltage and then they would turn off. Then the battery voltage would fall as it always does after charging. Then the battery charger would kick back on and then it would reach its cutoff voltage and it would turn off and it would do this over and over and over again. Not a very intelligent way to charge a battery. In batteries, there are bolt charging, 
which is the first 70% of the battery charge. Then there's absorption charging, the next 25% of the battery. And finally, there's float charging, which is the last 5% of the battery. During the bulk portion, you can dump as much current into that battery as the battery can take. You can dump in 30 amps. Then you back off on the amps and watch the voltage very carefully for the 25% absorption charging. And finally, you just give it about an amp or less for the final float charging. That's the last 5% of the battery. This is how the newer computer-controlled chargers can be several times more efficient and much better for your battery health than the old linear chargers. And for anyone interested, I have some genius standard wood pencils I'll sell you. They're only about $10 each. You can get them at Pencils1234.com. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel, reminding you that all of the great stuff I have done with Jack, all of my shows, all of my classes, all of the podcasts, are at Stephen1234.com for you to freely listen to. Thank you, guys. Talk to you next week. Great stuff, as always, from Stephen Harris. Uh, I was debating whether or not I was going to get another call answered for you guys today. Uh, before I finish with my last two, I just got an email back from Nick Ferguson uh, of a question that a caller had. So I'm going to go ahead and play that question for you and then immediately play uh, Nick Ferguson's answer. Remember, if you have a question for a member of the expert panel, just call in and uh, and leave your question for them. And then email me, jack at com. Put expert TSPC in the subject line and email me and tell me where you called from, what number you called from, who you called for, and I'll try to dig that out of the queue, so to speak, and get it some priority. So here we go. Question for Nick Ferguson and Nick's answer. Jack, i got a question for you. What's the uh, chances of survival for uh, many uh, young fruit trees damaged by deer scraping? So the bark is damaged by deer scraping the bark. Um, background, I live in Zone 5, Missouri. I planted... Um, about six or seven uh, fruit trees in my backyard uh, about a year ago. And this past fall, maybe a couple months ago, deer has scraped up uh, various trees and damaged anywhere from completely cracking the trunk in half of about one-year-old trees um, to, you know, just scraping the bark kind of minimal damage. So my first question is, what's the chances of survival? Do I need to replant these trees, place them, um, or just kind of prune them at the top, um, and then as they grow, just prune the damage off. And second question, is there anything I can do to repair the damage um, just to kind of help them survive? Thanks for all you do, Jack. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer the caller's question on fruit trees damaged by deer. So the chances of survival depend entirely on how damaged the tree is, but they are a lot more resilient than you think. So first of all, triage. If they are broken or more than 50% of the bark is removed, just cut right below the damaged area and hopefully above a swelling point on the trunk. And they will send out new branches from the spot where the bark swells out. So if you can look at the the trunk and it's, let's say it's broken two feet off the ground and and it's cracked and broken and there's going to be a, a spot right there where disease or insects are going to attack. So you cut right below that, but you look below that broken part for a spot where the the bark is is um, 
rounded or swelling out. It's not very uniform looking. Or there's a little um, cyclops looking uh, bud where you think that uh, a branch might come out there. Then you cut right above that. And hopefully, if everything goes well, it'll send out new branches from that, that new crown location and it'll branch out great for you. You want to make sure you cut above the the bud union, the graft union. So if you look at the bottom of your your tree closer to the soil level, you'll normally see a little crook in it. And that was where um, they grafted the cyan wood onto the rootstock. Now, with one-year-old trees, I wouldn't worry about using any crazy methods of saving the tree like an arch graft. Um, you can do that with more mature trees that you have like 10 or 15 years of time into. If they're just one-year-old and they don't live this next year, just replace them. But I would wait and see what it does this year, and if it doesn't recover, then I'd replace it. So for next year, though, I would suggest you invest in some tree tubes to protect your young trees. You might want to get an electric fence charger, string up a strand of electric at the nose height of the deer that live in your area, and put a piece of aluminum foil folded into a thick rectangle. So you're going to imagine a, a one-foot square piece of aluminum foil, and you lay it in front of you, and you take two two corners close to you, and you fold them over and keep folding them over until it looks like you have a long, skinny rectangle, and it's four or five layers of aluminum foil. Now, it's really thick and long and, you know, maybe two inches wide and a foot long. So you've got that. You take that to your fence, make sure it's unplugged, and drape that over your your hot wire. And then you bring those two ends together and kind of dog ear them so that they, they're not flopping around like a an upside-down V because uh, you don't want the wind to catch these and blow it off. You want to get that nice and and wrapped on there tight. And then what you want to do is smear on that aluminum foil either peanut butter or a dehydrated applesauce to the consistency of paste because you want it to stick on there. And you can use either or. Whichever you have will work. Um, some deer, depending on the time of the year and what their nutritional needs are, will prefer one or the other. So I like to alternate it. Applesauce, peanut butter, applesauce, peanut butter. So you're going to smear that on there. And then what I would do is I'd put up a strand of mason's twine um, in between that hot wire and the ground, just midway in between the hot wire and the ground, and then two or three feet above it. And if you can move those back a little bit away from the hot wire, what it's going to do is the deer's eye is going to see that, and after they've gotten zapped, they're going to see all those other horizontal lines, and they're going to know that those zap you. They're going to associate those horizontal lines with getting bit by electric bees, and they're not going to want to go through there because they're going to perceive it as a impenetrable barrier. So that's a, a really neat trick with deer with uh, electric fence. You don't have to put up massive amounts of fence to do this. It's really easy and relatively cheap. But I definitely get some tree tubes to protect your trees from rabbits, voles, deer, and anything else that might chew on or smush your trees or rub on them. Now, if your trees don't make it and the grafted part fails, like the, the trunk fails and, and it's just dead and 
and brown, you'll likely see the tree sucker up from the root crown from below that graft. Now, normally you'd be removing the suckers, but in this case, it's a very good thing. Let those suckers grow this year, and then next grafting season, you can graft some new cyan wood onto the tree. So apples would go on apples, pears on pears, plums on plums, etc. You can find lots of instructionals on grafting online, or you can sign up for my plant propagation course on the Permaethos website. I only cover a couple methods, but they're the simplest, most, um, they're the easiest success rate methods that I can come up with. But like I said, there's lots of instructionals online on different grafting methods. The main thing is you want to make sure you have good cambium contact. Now, I explain all this on the plant propagation course, but um, if you're interested in that, it might actually pay off for you this year just in saving your trees, let alone in adding more trees and other plants to your landscape. So I hope this helps. For any more questions that you listeners might have, call them in. I love answering these. Happy growing. Hi, Jack. Kevin from Memphis. I'm uh, calling to ask you a simple question. What is the difference between your virtual nation of Libertas versus something like the Member Support Brigade or Facebook or Twitter? Uh, if you kind of look at it, uh, you know, taxes could be memberships, uh, you know, any kind of membership fee or thing even you buy off of there could become some type of commerce or some type of tax. Uh, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that idea and see if I'm way off base. Thanks. Well, just so everybody understands where, where the caller is coming from, I did a show on virtual nations, and in that virtual nation is part of the, or that show is part of a thought experiment. I created a virtual nation I called Libertas, uh, which is a Latin for liberty. And it was the idea that a person could basically state they are a citizen of a virtual nation. And that virtual nation then would fill certain roles, like let's say education, uh, contract enforcement, contract mediation. Uh, there's just this whole list of services that we believe only government can do. And then in time, an entire economy could be built that's inside this virtual nation. Way too complicated to go deeply into as a response to a question here, but that's where the caller's coming from. And then so, well, how is that different from Facebook? Well, Facebook doesn't exist for the purpose of resolving conflict. You actually might think that Facebook's pretty good at, you know, insinuating conflict among people that don't even know each other. Uh, but it certainly doesn't exist for that purpose. The member support brigade is a business. And is there a TSP nation, so to speak, a, a larger community umbrella that people identify underneath the survival podcast as being part of something that's unique? Yes. There is a, what you call a tribe effect. Seth Godin has written extensively on this. And you could see it in some, some places actually called a nation. So, like, there's, you know, as a Steelers fan, I'm part of what you call the Steelers nation. There's an affinity. When, I, when I'm out in a store or something and I happen to be wearing a Steelers shirt or a hat or something, a lot of people walk up to me and they'll go, oh, cool, you're a fan. I'll go, oh, yeah. And there's times like if I'm wearing a hat, I forgot I was even wearing it. I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, I'll have my Steelers hat on and I usually wear my, uh, my Henschel hat. This is kind of sort of like an Aussie cowboy hat, you know. And I'm like, oh, thanks. And then I'm like, oh, I'm wearing a Steelers hat today. Oh, yeah. So there's this affinity. 
And it's true of sports teams. It's true of all types of things. There's an affinity. That's not a virtual nation, though, in the context that I'm discussing. What I actually believe is that for too long, people have relied on government force to solve their problems. So you and I have an agreement with each other, and something breaks down in that agreement. Whether it's, hey, stay out of my house and you're trespassing, or we actually went into a contract to do something with. So what we do then is I call the man to come get you, right? Or we live on the same street, but I don't like the way your yard looks because you planted sunflowers in the wrong pattern. So I call the man, in this case city code enforcement, who either does or does not have a regulation they can use to enforce my will on you. Okay, This is what's called non-voluntary associations. The, the, the country today that's supposed to be the freest nation in the world has the most amount of non-voluntary associations I can, I can think of of any uh, nation on the planet. is us. Right? I mean, we have so many ways that people interfere with other people. So many ways that people are compelled to participate in things. You can't even choose to not insure yourself for your own health insurance now. You're forced to participate. It's not nationalized health care. The hell it isn't. The hell it isn't, right? But I mean, that's that's a big thing. I mean, people are forced into so many things. So why don't we take back something? Why don't we take back something? Why don't we say, you know what? If you and I go to business together, we will both operate since we're virtual businesses, right? So we don't ship a product. Let's say there's an educational. Let's say I want to start an online school that teaches a certain thing. So everything's done online. And you are a web design development and maintenance company. And you provide hosting and services and ongoing stuff. And I say, you know what, let's do business in Libertas, which doesn't exist. It's just a thought experiment. And as we do that, we set up all our contracts in Libertas, as Libertasians. We have dual citizenship. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're from Spain. You're a citizen of the European Union. I'm a citizen of the, the U.S. Union. But we're not doing business as such. We're doing business as members of Libertas. And then I don't like something that you've done. So as part of our arrangement, we've selected an arbiter that's also a company that exists in Libertas, a, co a corporation, so to speak. And we've already decided that ABC arbitrators, based on our reviews of, of their, their customers, winners and losers alike, say that these guys are fair and just. So then we would say to ABC arbitrators, hey, we're having a conflict that we can't resolve on our own. Come give us some assistance. And they would hand down a ruling. And that could be set up to be non-binding or binding. We can set that up from the beginning. And we can set it to be non-binding. So a lot of times, you don't have to have a binding resolution. When an arbitrator comes in as a third party and explains, like, you know, I've read your contracts. I've looked at this. Joe, you should be working this way. And, and Tom, you, you know, they've really met their obligations to you. This is a satis customer satisfaction issue. If, if you're not satisfied, you can certainly, under the agreement, terminate your contract, get somebody else. But they don't owe you anything. They, they did what the contract required. A lot of times, both parties go, huh, okay, because you're, you're emotionally vested. And it, we have contracts written this way in my own businesses. You must first seek non-binding arbitration and then seek binding arbitration and you never involve the state. The state gets involved when you fail to comply with the binding arbitration. So then, okay, fine. You won't, you, you won't meet our agreement, right? 
So now we have to go enforce this agreement. And, and it sucks if you have to do that, but usually you don't. So that could be taken not just because you can do that right now, but to do it here. What if you just did it in this cloud, cloud city, a real cloud city? And that's a virtual nation. And something like a Facebook or a, a membership club or something like that has the tribal effect. If it's, if it's built properly, it certainly does. There's no doubt that you, you can use things like Reddit for arbitration. It's been done. Companies that have been accused of something said, that's not what we did, have run like a, a customer response thing on Reddit and said, we will be on Reddit for eight hours. We will take all questions. We will respond in kind and, and, and actually have done that and, and had people walk away from it and go, wow, I, maybe I still don't agree with everything, but okay, now I understand. So it can be harnessed that way. But no one yet has consolidated it to a place where it uses its own money with its own system of reserves, its own systems of voluntary associations, voluntary contract. So the only way that there would be um, some level of enforcement is there has to be first an agreement. So I can't force you to be my customer. I can't force you to pay a tax. What I can say is being part of the club, so to speak, has a certain expense. You don't have to be part of the club, though. The reason people struggle with this is they can't get their head around the entire concept of purely voluntary. Right? It, it's very hard for people, because we've been so conditioned to believe that you have to have control of people, that you, when you look at something that actually is liberty, you can't understand it anymore. It's like somebody speaking a foreign language. So... Things like Facebook, MSB, football membership, you know, associations and things like that, they show us the effect of tribalism. And remember, nations rose from tribes. That's how nations came to be. So what I'm saying is in an evolution of humanity, the tribalism effect around these virtual communities might manifest itself eventually in a true virtual nation where people could conduct the business that heretofore they've believed only the state could do. So you could get married in Libertas. You could have your agreement to what happens at the dissolution of a marriage in Libertas. And it's not the United States business. The key is, can you get it recognized? Does it offer any tax advantages? Yeah, they won't work because you'll never know until you try. And I've got too much on my plate, so I'm not building a virtual nation. But I'm telling you, somebody's going to. People are taking stabs at it right now. Someone is going to get it right. And once someone gets it right, I think a lot of someones will get it right. It'll be a very interesting thing to watch evolve. And we got one more, and we're done for the day. Hi, Jack. I wanted to ask you a mindset kind of question, which has to do with focus. And if you have a lot of ideas, and you think that most of them are good ideas, and you want to pursue them, either for education or as a business idea or to make a little bit of money. Um, how do you stay focused? Do you have any tips for someone like myself who has a few ideas, probably five or more, kind of in different stages of development and um, kind of get never finishing one before moving on to the other but never – deciding that one is done entirely either. They're just always in the air, always interesting, but never uh, finished before, you know, my attention is grabbed by something else. Um, anyway, seeing as how you're successful in a few different things, obviously, I thought you might have some good insight into that. Thank you.
Have a good day. Bye-bye. Okay, so this is a purely business question, really, and but it also has to do with any endeavors in your life. Um, there is, let me just say straight up, there is no successfully successful and gifted entrepreneur on the face of the planet that doesn't have the same problem you do. Not a single one. There is no way that you can be a creative, innovative, intelligent, aggressive person with ideas that can be channeled into something as is 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 mentally challenging to create as a business that's successful that thrives that lives that becomes its own thing that has multiple forms of capital not just financial capital that succeeds provides a living for you possibly provides jobs for other people if you're good enough to conceive of one idea capable of doing that and talented enough and, and aggressive enough and committed enough to actually pull it off and make it happen there is no way there's only one of those ideas in your noggin It's impossible for that to be the case. However, this is the next part. There's no entrepreneur that's ever taken one of those ideas into true success that hasn't put 90% or more of their effort into that one idea, at least for a time, and a time is not a week. A time is like years. It is so hard, and they're talking about the, 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 the king of doing multiple things that's realizing his limitations, by the way, and going, no more new things. I don't have any, I can't, right? This is my core. This is what I love. If you handed me $50 million tomorrow, I would probably take a month off just to figure out what the hell I'm going to do, right? But I'd be back at the microphone, and I would do this show for the rest of my life. I might have four or five people putting everything together for me, so all I got to do is sit down, review some stuff, and roll, right? Uh, and 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 just set aside some some money to put in a fund that pays for that. But I would basically at that point be doing it at no 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 gain whatsoever. Why? Because I love this. I love this. This is my life's work come to fruition, and I, I feel very blessed to be a person who has found something he feels like that about and can make money doing. And you can do it too, and everybody can do it, and very few people will. And the number one thing that will kill an entrepreneur is trying to do three businesses at one time or three ideas at one time. Right? And this, I, 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 I get into this challenge working with some very successful people that, like, oh, we should do this next. We're not even done with what we're started. All right? It's what I call moving boat syndrome. If you're a fisherman and you fish out of boats with people, you, we've all gotten that one person you fish with that you put your depth finder on, you find a spot, you look, this looks really good, the breeze is right, there's bait fish in the area, you've anchored the boat or you're trolling somewhere alongside or you're drifting a certain structure and you've just started to fish. And they say, we're not catching anything, let's move. This is the, this is a murder of an entrepreneur's success when you think that way. And what a lot of people say is, well, look at successful entrepreneurs like Donald Trump. They have like 20, 30, 40 companies. And if one goes broke, they don't care. But that's not how they built the empire. They they might have failed at three or four different businesses and then got one to succeed. And you look at that, and it's the same historical time horizon cloud That, that makes our millennial generation look at the successful people in, in my generation and older, and, and they think, oh, wow, you should just be able to do this. Well, they don't see all the failure. So you see the time cloud like amalgamates this all together. It was Well, for those seven years, he was doing these five things. Yeah, but probably not all at the same time. 
or quite often was doing quite a few of them at the same time, and quit all but one, or quit all and started a new one and stayed with that one. Building TSP was hard because I couldn't do that. But it was the only thing I focused on outside of a J-O-B, right? Even though I was an owner in the one company and, and had a partnership in another and it was a, you know, serving at a C level, uh, serving on a board. In the end, if I wasn't at work, TSP was all I did. And that meant everything in my life was built around this concept. What land I bought. How I, you know, when I did things for my own hobbies and learned, and how I put those into the show. The reading that I did was built around this. You know, I spent years reading about business principles. But when I got into TSP, okay, done, I got, I got that. I'm not going to sit here and read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the 500th time, like some of the network marketing ninnies out there do, right? Understand how business works. How does this business that I'm going to run work? And that's what you, you've got to do. Well, I have five ideas and they're all good. Which one do you believe in the most? Well, they're all good. No, 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 no. You have to treat it like you have five. Look at it this way. You want to be an entrepreneur? Start thinking like an entrepreneur. I put out an advertisement for a job, okay? And I say, please apply here. I get 100 resumes. 95 are shit. 95 are like, just delete, 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 delete. Del oh, okay. Put this aside. I know a five... Resumes. I do five interviews. Let's say all five are out of, there's not a person that I've interviewed that I don't feel could do this job, isn't willing to do the job, isn't willing to do it for the money that I have to pay. It wouldn't be outstanding. There are five great candidates. I have one position. I have enough money to hire one person. Four of them don't get hired. That makes perfect sense. Right? Because I only have the resources to utilize and pay for one. So now it becomes crystal clear. Oh, all five of them are great. Well, these two are just not at the caliber of these three. They're just not. Done. Of these three, interviewing this guy, he's got some personal issues that I don't know if he can resolve. He's off. Now I got two. Now, when I really get granular and I look at how they're going to fit into the culture, how much of a team player they're going to be, what skills they have, how quick I think they learn, how they adapt, one of them is a little bit better. You're hired. You get the job, right? Okay. When you're saying, well, I have all these great ideas, you're saying I have five great potential employees, right? You don't have the money and the resources to develop five. You don't have the money and the resources to develop two. You have the money and the resources to develop one. And if it doesn't work, then you fire it and hire the second candidate. Okay? Unlike the five candidates, when you don't hire Sue, who was your number two choice, and she goes to work for Cogswell Cogs and you're Spacely Sprockets and you're screwed, you can't get her back, it's your thing. It's your idea. It's your concept. You can just do that one. It's never gone. If you take this approach... No matter what you do, you will learn the principles of business. You will learn the laws of business. You'll learn what's hard and what's easy. You'll learn what you like and what you hate. You'll learn what to focus on and what not to focus on. You will probably fail in your first business attempt. 
That doesn't mean that the idea won't ever work, but like the first, you have, it's like six months ago, this is, there's all these things that are wrong. And you'll have to say to yourself, is it the core idea that I was married to that's actually the problem, or is it the operations? Do I need to just basically shut this down and take the same idea and come at it from a different angle, or do I need to go on this, like this, okay, this is great. I learned how to get customers. I learned how to, how to, how to, how to negotiate. I learned how to market. I learned how to build a website. I learned how to do all this stuff. Now I can do anything with it. And I've learned about all this stuff in this. Now I've found these other opportunities. I've found these other niches, these other ways that I can be successful. Do I need to shift gears and go there? But you won't. And here's the thing. If you did that and you failed in six months and then took your second idea and failed in six months, okay? So you're at a year now, a year of failure on two of your ideas. And then you take on your third idea. It is absolutely the case that you will be in better shape at that second failure point than you would be if you tried to do all three at the same time from the beginning. You'll be smarter, you'll be faster, and you'll move quicker. You'll have a better understanding of things, and those two will have been already ratted out to be like this. this I really thought this, this, this Tom guy was going to be good at this job I hired him for. He's freaking fired. No severance. Get out the door. You suck, Tom. Right? That's your ideas. Your ideas are like all types of little employees going, I want a job. I can learn. I'm dedicated. I'm hardworking. I'm a good guy. I've got a degree in this. I've got a, a certification in that. I am awesome. Hire me. Give me a job. Okay, here's your job. Okay, you suck. You're fired. Right? You have to be that way with your ideas. They're all vying for your attention. So you have to sit down. You say you have five ideas. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you can't in three sentences tell me your idea so that I understand it, define how that idea will function, work, and operate, and define how that idea will generate revenue, it's not an idea. It's a thought. It's a thought. It hasn't even graduated to idea. It's, it's an infant shitting its pants. Okay, It's not even a toddler that knows how to wipe its own butt yet. It's a thought. So at least get it from infant to toddler. So it can at least wipe its butt. You get it there. Now I can analyze it and I can, I can go, okay, there's five spots left on the toddler soccer team, or one spot left. Here's five toddlers that made it this far. Everybody kick a ball. Okay? You all suck, but this guy's ball went two feet instead of two inches. You get the position. Okay? I would never be that hard on kids. I'm trying to make a point. All right? That's how you have to be. So you sit down and you analyze these, and I can't decide. Then pick one. Flip a freaking coin. Throw a freaking dart. If they're both that good, here's the key. It doesn't matter which one is a better idea if either one is successful. If you take, you said, you know what, I'm down to two. I got A and B. I just can't decide. Okay, you're probably not ready to be in business. Because you're not decisive enough. But let's let's fix it for you. Let's fix it for you. It's going to be A or B? Yeah? Okay, it's going to be A. Why? Doesn't freaking matter. Doesn't matter. Because I said, because you don't know and I said so. It's A. But no, no buts, just do A. Because if A succeeds, either you're not going to give a shit about B in a couple months, or you're going to get so successful with A, you can then come back and integrate B or springboard B, okay? 
But if you don't do either one, or you try to do both at the same time, you're going to either fail through lack of ability to deliver, or through inaction. You've got to pick one. You grab onto it. You charge hard with it. And you accept failure is the cost of school. It amazes me that a person fears trying to run a business for six months to a year, realizing it's not working out, mitigating how much it can cost them, and maybe losing 10 grand. Maybe you lost. Like in, in the end, when this is all over with, I'm writing down a loss of $10,000 on business operations on my tax return and not giving that money to the government. I had a job. I worked full-time, whatever. I worked part-time. I was My spouse worked, and I, I gave this thing a go and say, ah, oh, God, that would be horrible. And then you have people coming out of college that literally are not qualified to open the door for someone with $50,000 worth of debt. Don't know shit compared to that person. If they gave it, if you just get business cards and put president on them, convince yourself you're in business and not operate, then it's pointless. You might as well just send me your $10,000 for saving you the trouble. And, and, and my consultation to you then is keep your job, right? Just send me your 10 grand as a fee for that right now and I'll, I'll, I'll send you an invoice back. If you actually try to operate the business for a year and it doesn't work because either you didn't time it right, you misgaged the market, there were things you were unaware of. When you go to do it the second time, do you think you're going to be better at it? Who picks up a guitar and plays beautiful music the first time? Who picks up a rifle and drills out bullseyes at 300 yards the first time? Who the first time they try to walk doesn't fall on their face, doesn't have to pull themselves up? See, this is back to the millennial thing at the beginning of the show. We have an expectation of microwave society. As I close here, I want to tell you a story. Because this sums up what's wrong with America today and our instant gratification mindset. When I was a little kid, My grandmother worked at a diner. I had never seen a microwave oven in my life. I didn't know what one was. One day, my mom took me to see my grandma at the diner, and she said, do you want a piece of apple pie? What kid says no to that, right? So I said, yeah. She goes, do you want it warm? I'm like, well, yeah. Sitting here spinning around. You know those things they spin around with in the old diners? You know, it's cold. You, know, you can warm it up. Well, it might take a while. So she takes the pie. She puts it on a plate. She goes behind the counter. And a couple seconds later, she comes back. And there's steam coming off the pie. And I was like, wow, how did you do this? She goes, it's called a microwave. I'm like, where do you get one? She goes, oh, they're pretty expensive. But, you know, people are starting to put them in their house. I was like, I, I couldn't believe That in 25 seconds, this pie was steaming hot. I, 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 I could not get my eight-year-old brain around this. Now it's expected. It's expected to be that easy. It's expected to be that fast. This stuff, if you want it, takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication. It takes a certain special mentality. But you are one person, and you only have so much you can do. Pick one. They're all great. Then flip a coin until you're out of ideas. A, B, C, D, or E. Uh, let's go. Uh, if, if, if heads lands, E's gone. If, if tails lands, D's gone. Flip, heads, E's out. Okay, let's just keep going. Okay, now it's between A and B. Heads for A, tails for B. Tails, B's gone. 
All right. If they're really all that good, and you know what? You probably won't do it that way because they're probably not all that good. I bet you if you have five ideas, one's really dumb. One's really stupid. And if you get it from crap in its pants to toddler wiping its own butt and form out three key components of the idea, three sentences, can you tell me what it is, what it does, how it will operate, and how it will generate revenue? Well, there's all kinds of ways. No, let's be very specific. What is this? He says you got to understand. I'm going into a whole business dissertation now, and I got to stop, right? Because we're in a long show here. But I don't care what a business is; it has a core competency. And every business that gets really broad started out with a core competency. And the people that ran the business focused on the core competency, and they did it well. And they made it work. And then you, bo- you don't even care. Well, one day we could. I don't care. What are you going to do today? Day one of business operations. What is your revenue generating? What is your core competency? We're going to create content and sell it. Great. How is it going to? Now you're. I'm not saying it's going to work, but you know that's what this business does. Okay. I'm going to set up a co-op, all the local growers to sell their food to people as a middleman. So I am going to gather the intelligence of all the producers in my area that have product and surplus. I'm going to market the other side, and I'm going to make income off the spread in between the two. Great. Will it work? Don't know. Don't know your market. Don't know how good you are. But I, at least I, I know the core competency of your business and your revenue model. Multiple streams of revenue, great idea. But they better come off the core competency then. You start telling me, well, I'm also going to do consulting. On what? Farm operations. Really? You ever run a farm before? No. Shut up. You don't know how to run a farm. They already do. That's why they have product and surplus. Sell their stuff. Sell their stuff. If that's your business, sell their stuff. Well, I have a great understanding of this. I can operate a farm. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be worried about the co-op. You should be worried about the consulting. Where's the opportunity lie? This is how you have to think. And I'm not saying do that business. There's a million businesses you can come up with. Define it. Understand it. Put it into something that could be explained in 45 seconds to anybody you tell it to goes, I get it. Don't worry about whether they think it's a good idea or not. Because most people will think your ideas are bad ideas. That's why they don't do anything. Because they don't think anything works. right? But once that you can explain it, and a person that doesn't know nothing about it can understand it in 45 seconds to a minute tops and understands those layers. What does it do? How does it operate? What is its revenue model? Who are its customers? What opportunity exists in your space with it? Not mile high, you know, like all this, you know, niche marketing analysis and stuff. Just like there's a pretty good sized market for this right now. Uh, people doing this in, in the area, some total, uh, uh, a couple million dollars in revenue. So there's a piece there that could be captured, let alone what could be created. Okay, fine, you know. That's how you have to do it. And again, not an entrepreneur in the world that's ever been successful that doesn't have a hundred ideas floating around in their head at one time. No successful entrepreneur started multiple things at the same time and, 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 and was able to succeed with one or any. Sometimes you're playing around with other things and learning other things, and that's good. It keeps your mind going, but your focus has to be like a laser on one thing to get it off the ground. It literally is creating a life. Creating a life. A successful business is a life form. It really is. And you've created it from nothing 
but your ideas and your dedication and your soul. That's what a business is. Well, I think creating one life form at a time is a sufficient burden for any man or woman. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you.